Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books and Critical Theory. I'm your host, Dr. Dave O'Brien from Goldsmiths, University of London. On this episode, I'll be talking to Dr. Zoe Thompson from Leeds Becker University about her new book, Urban Constellations, Spaces of Cultural Regeneration in Post-Industrial Britain. Welcome to New Books and Critical Theory. On this episode, I'll be talking to Zoe Thompson, who is a senior lecturer in cultural studies at Leeds Beckett University. And we'll be talking about her new book, Urban Constellations, Spaces of Cultural Regeneration in Post-Industrial Britain. So welcome to the podcast. Hi, thanks for having me, Dave. Um, Urban Constellations is is a book uh, that sort of tries to combine um, some case studies about um, contemporary uh, regeneration projects, particularly cultural regeneration projects, and uh, some really interesting critical theoretical interventions and I wonder if you could sort of uh, tell the listeners a bit about um, how you came to write the book and what your sort of uh, background was that, that led you to write the book. I know you say at the start that it was a, the culmination of a kind of a five-year research um, project. Yeah. Um, well, the, the, the book actually comes out of my PhD research. And um, I suppose my background to that is that um, I, I'm, I'm from the northeast originally, um, And then I went to Salford to do my first degree in sociology as a mature student in the mid-90s. And so I arrived in Manchester just weeks after the IRA bomb that kind of destroyed parts of the city and had, you know, sort of started off a regeneration uh, project in in the city. Um, So I did sociology at Salford and there that's where I first encountered a lot of the ideas that that came to form the basis for the book. So I was taught by people like Paul Taylor, Brian Longhurst, and and most importantly, Graham Gillick, um, who's a sort of specialist in Walter Benjamin. So he was he was also the first person to introduce me to Baudrillard, um, as I completed my undergrad dissertation on on the theme of the body in in, in Baudrillard's work. And I think um, Graham Gillick always encouraged me to take him both sort of more and less seriously. So as both kind of a Dornian worst case scenario uh, critic, and also as a kind of playful provocateur and. Um, I think you know that's where my sort of interest in that in that kind of theory started. Interestingly enough, actually, Graham didn't teach any Benjamin um, as to undergrads, so it was it was later that I came to his work. So then, after I graduated, I worked for a couple of years, and um, during which I completed an MA in cultural studies at what was then Leeds Met, and I did that part time. And there, I encountered Will Merrin, who was another Baudrillard specialist, and Ross Abinet, who is sort of specialist in continental philosophy and postmodern thinkers. Um, and I'd already decided that I did want to go into academia and do a PhD, so I kind of ran the funding gauntlet and ended up at the University of Birmingham, where I was a graduate teaching assistant, and I completed an MA in social research there with them, and then my um, my PhD, which was AHRC funded. And that's where the, the book sort of starts, really, in the sense of it's out of that PhD project that the book emerges. So, um, yeah, so that it was those, that, the sort of concentration of, being in different northern cities 
and this sort of um, being interested in the sort of crit- critical repertoire of Benjamin and Baudrillard and trying to put those two things together that was the sort of catalyst to that project, really. Um, and then um, after I finished the PhD, I worked on a, an NIHR health uh, research project based between the NHS and the Universities of Leeds and York. And then I've been at Leeds Beckett since 2012 in the School of Cultural Studies. So it was around ideas about urban change, um, transformations of of post-industrial cities that's sort of been my abiding interest, really. And and this has been a major um, kind of academic, but also um, practical question that's really kind of... um, been something that cities around the world have had to deal with so you know it's not a a purely kind of british phenomenon to see um cultural organizations and specifically cultural buildings used to kind of change places and you use four examples which uh the lowry in salford which is a kind of um city that's sort of next door to manchester but has been Mm -hmm. absorbed into manchester the deep in hull which hull is um a kind of um, smaller northern city mm, mm. Uh, on the north coast of the UK, but it will be UK City of Culture in three years' time, I think. Yes, uh, 2017, I think it is. 2017. Uh, the Sage and Gateshead, um, which is the kind of the other side of the river to Newcastle, which is yeah. in the northeast. Yeah, and yeah. then the public in West Brom, which is um, a place just outside uh Birmingham and so in, in many ways there are kind of um, you know these are big big towns big cities but they're also they've got these kind of interesting um, bigger places um, that they're kind of part yeah. of. Yeah yeah and it was important actually that they weren't the most important sites so in a sense you know it's important to me um, in terms of the rationale of the project and also the kind of theory of the sort of Benjamin's notion of the minor and the, the overlooked and the sort of neglected, that, that, that it wasn't Manchester, that it was Salford rather than Manchester, that it was Gateshead rather than Newcastle and so on and so forth, because actually um, the stakes are higher in a way for those sites um, because that their their sort of sister sister towns or cities close by have a have a kind of have always had a kind of greater capacity um, to transform and a, and a greater kind of um, you know historically their fortunes have been different. So it was important actually that there were these more minor sites as well, um, and also more you know more, mostly importantly that it wasn't um, that I wasn't trying to read out off these case studies from, from the capital, from the position of the capital of London, where we could, you know, you could literally just turn around and find one every, everywhere you looked. So, so yeah, there was definitely a, a privileging of the minor going on in, in the choice, really. Yeah, and, and I suppose the kind of, the stakes are almost uh, kind of higher for, for these, um, these uh, minor or, or maybe more peripheral places because yeah. to an extent, you know, they kind of, uh, they gamble quite heavily on these cultural buildings for Absolutely. a variety of, um, in, in some ways, you know, kind of uh, rational or, you know, kind of hopeful or optimistic uh, mm. projects, but in other ways, you know, really kind of fantastic in, you know, the kind of fantasy sense of the term. Sure, um, sure. Ways of sort of changing themselves. Absolutely, yeah. Um, so that was that. That was important that there were these more peripheral sites, and and actually, and and as well as that, you know, it was about the fact that they were all funded by public money, so that it was national lottery money that that was one of the chosen criteria that they were funded through, um, and that obviously there was staging arts or culture in some way, 
Um, so we did rule out other contenders, you know, like, for example, the Eden Project, um, Warsaw Art Gallery, Urbis, the Baltic. So, so that, that, that then created a kind of pool of, of sort of, of, of case studies to choose from. Um, but and, I had to sort of, yeah, sorry, go on. No, and it, it's interesting you mentioned the lottery funding because it, it, it's something that um, the case studies kind of bookend um, the, the sort of era of a particular kind of urban regeneration in the UK that really stopped with um, certainly 2010, but, but really kind of uh, stopped with the financial crisis in the sense of, you know, public spending being able to build, you know, brilliant new buildings that would somehow transform urban spaces. Well, that money just isn't there anymore. It's not something that the public seem to be uh, committing to. Absolutely. And I think it's interesting in a way that it's certainly that's when I, was, when I was coming to write the book that it felt like the right moment because there was this sort of flourishing of a very short period, really, in sort of British culture around these sorts of projects, um, you know, marked possibly by the sort of, you know, the end of the 90s, the sort of millennial optimism. And then, as you say, there's the financial crash. But interestingly, like the building, the, like the public, which which sort of already falls out of love with that mode of regeneration sort of prior to the financial crash, which sort of adds an interesting layer of, on the one hand, the sort of economic circumstances that produce these buildings, but also the kind of waning of that towards the sort of, you know, late late 2000s when, when actually the sort of um, the ability for them to actually do their, do the job that everyone hopes they'll do is starting to become a bit sort of questioned and questionable. And it's interesting the kind of, uh, I mean, we touched on this idea of, you know, those buildings being there to do particular jobs and, you know, the kind of fantastical elements. And you use this term uh, to kind of describe all of them, which I think is quite interesting. You call them dream houses. Mm. Uh, I wonder if you could sort of say a bit about that term and, and where it comes from, why you thought it was useful. Yeah, well, this is a term that comes from Benjamin's um, arcade project, which is this kind of unfinished magnum opus that he writes about about the city um in the 30s and he counted among the sort of 19th century uh, dream houses in, uh, when he's looking at paris buildings such as the arcades uh, railway station winter gardens and these were sort of new structures that began to appear in urban sense in the urban sense of modernity that were sort of a triumph of technology and innovation over nature so the sort of arcades turned the street into an interior the railway stations were hubs that transformed space and time through rail travel. You know, the winter gardens beat climate restrictions through their heating and made tropical plants available for visitors all year round. And I suppose we could think of sort of, in the British context, you could think of a building like Crystal Palace, a sort of famous British uh, dream house, um, a glass and iron marvel, a feat of engineering. And for Benjamin, that was both a kind of showcase of the spoils of the British Empire at the World Fair and, and also a place where audiences were first trained to look at commodities and sort of trained to become consumers. So for him, um, the, the notion of the dream house is about the way in which buildings carry within them sort of both the utopian promise and the failure of a particular historical period in which they were conceived. Um, so when they're examined um, either at their inception, which is what I'm trying to do here with, with these buildings, or as Benjamin did in the early 20th century when they're on the verge of ruin, he argued it's possible to sort of make visible these promises and these hopes and dreams of the society and culture that produced them. So that's what, where the term dream house comes from. And I thought this was a really fitting way to actually think about these recent projects of cultural regeneration in the UK, and um, particularly the projects conceived and built around the millennium because of the, at the moment of their inception, 
that they were filled with the sort of promises and dreams of transformation for their for their locations. I mean, I didn't quite expect to have to be able to exist in a, a ruin so soon, you know, with the public. So, but I'm arguing, I think, in the book that the buildings I look at um, are the sort of latest version of this phenomenon that Benjamin uh, noticed in the 1930s. Benjamin is clearly really, really important to the book. Uh, you know, he's a he's a central figure um, in in the text. And the other um, kind of key thinker is, is Jean Baudrillard, um, the kind of high priest of, uh, of postmodernism and hyperreality and these kind of ideas. And I wonder if you could say a bit about uh, why those two thinkers are important and and the role they play in your um, your analysis of the four case studies. Sure. Um... I mean, I think what's important about them both is that is the subtlety of their thought on the urban, really. I mean, both thinkers pay attention to the to the kind of surfaces of the city, and they're also both concerned with the technical transformations of the image and how that then translates into the spatial organisation of cities, really. So architecture as a media form, if you like, um, is, is, a, is a way that the, they offer us something um, new and novel about understanding uh, understanding the urban. So I think um, if we take Benjamin first, um, I've already mentioned that he, through the concept of the dream house, he kind of offers up a way to think through some of the promises and the failures of modernity. So through the notion of the messianic, which I trace um, throughout the book, is where the political lies in his work, I would argue, um, what I call the kind of hopeless hopefulness. This is the messianic is the yet to come, the promise that's still to be discharged at a future point, a kind of generational responsibility. And I think that's a useful way to understand these projects because of this. They were on the one hand heralded and celebrated. And on the other hand, they kind of perhaps offer up a more dubious or commodified experience of culture. But their success, nonetheless, is still vitally important to the, to the locales that they're in. So they can't fail. And yet, on the other hand, they, we, we might question the experience that they end up producing. And I think Baudrillard is, uh, as I mentioned earlier, a kind of provocateur. He's a kind of offers a, um, he, he sort of he challenges us to accept that much of contemporary life is concerned with surface aesthetics, with illusion, with a kind of seduction of empty gestures. But through a sort of these ironical readings, he allows us to disturb these shiny surfaces and and see them differently rather than swallow their rhetoric. So I think the two together, um, it, the irony on the one hand disturbing the surface and the messianic, which offers a kind of fragile rupture to the surface, opens up um, a critical purchase on the structures. So the two together I think are important because without the one without the other is a kind of is is a kind of falling into nihilism on the one hand with Baudrillard or a kind of um, uh, a sort of an inability to examine because of the time that he's writing the, the transformations of the aesthetic realm that he examines actually ends up for Benjamin at least um, because um, so, so it's trying to get them to work together to produce this reading so this kind of moving between the two I think opens up these kind of tiny chinks in the, in the surface that we can kind of then redeem the spaces through and that's what I'm looking to do all the way through the book really is find the moments of redemption where we where they're rescued from themselves in a way. The, the, the other thing to uh, to kind of develop from that is the different kind of economy you're, uh, you're interested in and you attempt to um, you know, apply um, 
these, uh, I guess, kind of paradoxical but potentially redemptive figures too. Uh, and that comes in the, the difference between uh, the kind of political economy of buildings, which you say, you know, is there but you're not especially interested in, and then mm. the symbolic economy of urban spaces. Mm. And I wonder if you could say uh, both, you know, why it's important to study this symbolic economy and how that might different uh, be different from, say, a, a political economy approach. Well, I think, I mean, the political economy is there, but as you're right to say that I'm that I'm foregrounding the symbolic economy. I suppose I'm wanting to take the cityscape um, as a phenomenon, as a surface to be read and experienced. So both its kind of textual qualities, the way in which these buildings are kind of stamped onto the landscape, but also the way in which it produces an embodied response. Um, so I'm interested in how the buildings, and as we encounter the buildings, they make their marks on the landscape, but they also produce an effect. So we encounter them sort of as, both visually and in an embodied way. So it was about starting with the building and taking it as, you know, at first sight, if you like, and working backwards from that, peeling off its layers or disturbing its surface, depending on, the, 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 you know, which which concept we use. Um, the political economy stuff is important, that it's still important, but I wanted to, to start with how we first encounter spaces as individuals. Um, and the symbolic economy is important because it's the way in which, on top of the sort of economic organisation of space, we have this kind of, um, this other layer, what, uh, what we might call a kind of mythology of the city. And some of the ways in which that works is if we think about things, the way in which signs and street names and dialects create the city as, in Benjamin's terms, a linguistic cosmos. So this then opens up the possibility of understanding how places are then both real and imagined, um, which is sort of straightforward political economy uh, reading doesn't offer in a sense. So in, in that way, architecture is evidence of that real and imagined uh, uh, notion of the urban, um, which we can't quite get at through a more conventional economic analysis. So I suppose it's a more... Uh, what I would call a psychogeographical starting point that pays attention to um, the symbolic um, uh, elements, uh, both, but also the, the visual and the embodied. Yeah, and, and these elements of uh, real and imagined, um, you know, and, and the visual are really kind of present in the uh, the first case study, which is is the Lowry um, in, in Salford, where you begin. Um, from a particular painting by by Lowry um, that you know kind of captures people going um, to um, a football match, and then kind of move through a variety of um, different uh, reflections on the building to make an argument about how the building is at once a kind of very problematic intervention into urban regeneration, but also might have a a redemptive and uh, almost kind of collective notion of art and culture behind it. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, from the start, the Lowry has this kind of awkward juxtaposition between the centre itself and the stuff that's in there. So the fact is that Lowry's art was never actually intended for the centre. Um, it just so happened that Salford had the, had the archive and they were able to move it into the building. So there's, but there's, a, you know, it's, it's, it's evident when, we, when you, you walk through that space that the galleries are kind of tacked on as a kind of added on feel to them. So there's this curious sort of sense in which the building's named after him, but he's, he has this sort of, um, he has this sort of, um, 
he's not he wasn't there at the start if you like nonetheless the presence of his art I'm, I'm arguing in the book um works to redeem the space away from that notion of a, an empty site of corporate culture because it makes visible um the various chinks so you know between the past and present urban life you know his crowd scenes sort of point to another version of urban life, a kind of collective effervescence. And I think it's important that the centre then can reignite that possibility for visitors and to kind of show the discrepancies between then and now, not in a nostalgic way. Um, and I think that's the, the problem with for me with the Oasis video. I, I, I find that their video for the master plan is a kind of, is a they accept a caricatured version of Lowry's art in their video and they want to merely slot themselves into it and all of the associations with working class northernness that they, they kind of play to. Um, but that's not what Lowry's doing. And I think he's, he's misunderstood as an artist of, of nostalgia, really. The cities that Lowry paints um, are not painted with a nostalgic eye, but rather a critical eye. So his, his eye goes to the urban oddities, to the figures, the sameness and the difference, the sort of institutions of working class culture, the church, the football ground and the factory. And because those images are on the wall in the centre, we look out to a very different landscape. And I think it prompts visitors then to ask those questions about about class, about who comes to the centre, about where are the working class now, who is the centre for. So he becomes this kind of destructive character in a way. He wasn't meant to be there, but that actually he ends up being the thing that, or his art at least, ends up being the thing that uh, prevents the centre from a kind of straightforward, commodified cultural approach. Now, in a way, the second case study, uh, The Deep in Hull, um, it, it is in some ways completely different. Um, and I, I found the starting point quite interesting as well, because uh, to an extent, you kind of you go straight for the gift shop um, yeah. and kind of begin your analysis there. Um, and yeah. The Deep also as being, um, you know, a kind of clearly a cultural space, but not a cultural space in the way that we'd view a sort of, um, you know, a traditional uh, art gallery or concert hall. Yeah, um, yeah, I do start in the gift shop. Um, the, again, this, this this privileging of the minor. So we start with the snow globe, the kind of, you know, in a way the most insignificant moment in the building or the most insignificant sort of throwaway dis- disposable souvenir. Um, and, you know, souvenir itself from the French means to look again, to, to see again. And actually, when we do that with the snow globe, it becomes this this tool, this kind of philosophical toy that we can then um, see more of the building. So it actually reveals more than it appears at first glance, just as just as the building itself of the deep does. And in fact, all the other buildings. So the, 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 the gift shop starting in the gift shop, you know, it's brimming with treasures. It's the last place you go to on your way out of the building as fluffy toys and models and keyrings. And then when you start to look more closely at them, you realise, you know, they're all made in China. And then that sort of prompts this thinking about, you know, ecological impact on the globe of the container shipping that would have been needed to get all of that stuff over to Hull and, the, you know, the fossil fuels that are burned to create them, the workers in China who produce the items, um, pollution and the impact on on, uh, on the environment, global warming. And we see this kind of commodification of nature in the very site that seeks to preserve it. So in that way, these kind of contradictions of the building are revealed. And I think none more so than the the point at which, you know, visitors to the centre, which you're right, is not the kind of usual cultural venue, but, but, but nature becomes this kind of um, 
nature is commodified, if you like, for for our viewing pleasure. And I argue there's a kind of filmic quality to the space and the way that it displays the the, the, the fish and the, the other creatures in in there. But but but, but perhaps um, you know one of the moments that's most sort of um, provocative is when diners can go on a Friday night, I think it is, and you can you can sit and look into the tank of the deep in the restaurant. And, and eat fish and watch fish. And I just think, I think I read it as a kind of this unca- this uncanny encounter between nature and culture in the kind of Freudian sense, this sort of, you know, the return of the repressed. So there's, there's very much a sort of a, 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 um, an uneasy um, an uneasy alliance here between between our experience of nature and the way in which nature is having to be exploited in order for the deep to exist. Your your third case study, I guess, um, it, it is is similar and different again um, because um, you focus when you're thinking about the stage in Gateshead uh, on the question of memory, and um, you have quite a, an active and sort of personalised role in the chapter because of the uh, the methods you adopt of kind of essentially sort of thinking through your experience of, of walking round. Mm. Um, center. So I wonder if you could say a little bit about uh, your methods and the relationship between ideas about individual and collective memory um, and the kind of broader regeneration projects that, in fact, all of these case studies are part of. Well, I, I, use, I use walking methods throughout the case studies, but I think, um, and it, you know, I'm taking the idea of the flaneur and, and adapting that, that visual and embodied figure through the spaces that's coming out of, of sort of Benjamin's work. But um, the, the, it's most explicit, I think, in the chapter on the sage. And that's partly possibly because um, there's an encounter in that chapter with my own past, given that I'm from the northeast and I have family connections to the site. So um, I think in, in um, both Baudrillard and Benjamin experiment at various points in their careers with sort of autobiography and memoir uh, in an attempt to kind of produce these subjective responses to places. So there's kind of playing with those ideas in, in that chapter. And I argue that, you know, our responses to these buildings are both universal and also highly particular. So you know, the very fact that I'm from that area inevitably will take me back into my past and take me back into 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 what was there before. And it, it so happens that that then brings up sort of memories of my family, etc. So in a sense, walking around the site and then also the views that the building stages for visitors to it um, – you know, cast a you know magnificent view out across the Tyne, across the Tyne Bridge, and around around that area. Um, and at the same time, as it kind of the sage covers over what was there before and the elements of old gates that I'm I'm discussing as being connected to my to my past and my family's past. At the same time, it kind of simultaneously evokes that those moments because this kind of notion of memory on foot uh, as as I walk around the places. So there's a sense in which the building becomes this aperture into the past for me, that redeems it from just being a kind of spaceship that's crash-landed on the site. Um, And I expect that most of the buildings could provoke this response for people who were local to them. Clearly, my response to the sage is going to be different, perhaps, Dave, from yours, but but I think that that it's important to register those local effects and those subjective responses. because I think that's where that embodied sense is, is is felt actually when we encounter these spaces. The, the final case study um, 
I think it might be worth dwelling on for a little bit because it it captures, um, I guess, the kind of um, the hidden risks um, that um, underpin the other three case studies. Um, a, a sort of um, a story about, uh, in some ways, you know, the kind of the failure um, of uh, how these cultural buildings um, can be used to to regenerate places. I, I'm thinking in, in particular how both the Larry, the Deep and the Sage, um, you know, you have to read in, um, I, I think, quite um, kind of interesting and provocative ways um, in order to open them up to critique. Whereas the public in West Bromwich, there's a really straightforward story of here is a building that kind of closed before it opened. Um, yeah. So I wonder if you could say actually a little bit of detail about the story behind the public um, mm. and then talk about um, what it might mean as a, as a premature ruin. Mm. Well, I mean, in a way, we're ending on the saddest note, in a sense, um, which, you know, the campaign to save the public was, was lost in, at the end of 2013, and I, and I think it, it will be turned into a six-form college. But when I began this project in 2005, the building was already halted, so it had run out of money, and it was this kind of, you know, this kind of forlorn, empty shell. So it was already ruined before it was finished, and it so it prompted me to think through what that might mean. Um, as the research sort of progressed, um, the project was beset by a number of setbacks and failures and halts, and eventually it stuttered open, but only to sort of see its the, the technology in its galleries fail and then it have to be, have to be closed again. So there's this kind of endless, and this sort of deferral in the sort of Derridean terms, or, or what I would like to, to sort of claim for it as a kind of messianic cessation in, in Benjamin's terms. So these fits and starts, um, I think, start to raise questions about its rationale and the, the rationale of these big projects. So it, it was it was meant to be built for this kind of um, peripatetic arts group called The Public. And then as the money sort of spiralled out of control, they were all made redundant. Um, you know, it, it ended up costing more, but I think the, the, the figure, it spiralled from 40 to 53 million um, pounds of public money, of course, um, and then it also prompts the question of the notion of these kind of architects, these kind of famous architects who are sort of brought in to, to build these spectacular buildings. Because Will Alsop, who was the original architect, didn't end up finishing the project. And then when its galleries broke, um, the whole notion of the fact that the building itself didn't really have anything in it, it was there for the public to make their own art, um, started to, you know, raise questions about what, who is this for and, and what is this project for? And actually, what can we expect from such a project? How does it translate to the local communities for whom it's intended, but who then don't recognise it, don't don't feel that ownership and that, that sense of connectedness to it? So I think that notion of the premature ruin and the ill-fatedness of, of the building allows for an interrogation of sort of important questions about public engagement with culture and what that might mean. And it's certainly not to celebrate the ruin. In a sense, um, it's to show, it's to sort of, it's to, it's to use its, it, the story of that building to ask very sober questions about, about who and what it was for, really. And, and, and the, the, you know, the, the ability that these projects have to actually transform, um, transform their, their locales for the better. So I think, you know, its setbacks also, as we've discussed earlier, did signal ahead of the financial crisis a kind of collective weariness with that with that cultural regen formula. You know, the big building, famous architect, post-industrial site, a kind of cultural ennui with this this sort of project. 
and so rather than a kind of economically deterministic, there's no money for this kind of thing anymore, blah, blah. Actually, the fatigue with that idea was already present in, in the public. So I think it's actually a really important, if we redeem anything from that, from that premature rune, it is asking those questions about the, about these, the ethics of, of these, of these buildings really. And, and the book concludes um, by sort of um, being quite open and honest about the ambivalence um, of the analysis, but um, that ambivalence carries through into the idea that it's probably still better for these spaces to exist than for them to not exist. And, and this manifested itself in, uh, and, and I might have sort of slightly misread this, but in the idea that kind of um, in this analysis, Benjamin beats Baudrillard, as it were, that um, his version of kind of um, critique and um, an ambivalence is, is kind of, um, if not better, but more appropriate than, than Baudrillard. And I wonder if you could kind of um, talk through the book's ambivalent conclusion and um, how those two thinkers struggle um, mm. in that conclusion. Yeah, I think it does. I do. I do end on an ambivalent note, and but I do still think it's it's better that they they exist. The intention was never to kind of was always to be critical of this this sort of latest mode of of, of sort of um, urban change, but was never to be, um, you know, uh, sneering from the sidelines at these projects because they are very important. They're vitally important for the for the areas that they that they exist in for 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 all kinds of reasons, not least economic. Um, uh, and I think that in the end, it does come down to a leap of faith and the 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 kind of the fragility of 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 Benjamin's reading allows for still allows that, that possibility of political transformation, even though it is weak and even though it is fragile. And I think that whilst Baudrillard is a moral position, there's no doubt that he takes seriously what he says. And he possibly believes that his position is the most moral. It's not a political position. Um, you know, his version of the of the um, the event without precedent, that which arises from which we couldn't predict, that he sort of he, he uses he terms the symbolic as against the simulation of, of the sort of image producing societies, isn't cannot be willed. It cannot be organised for, and it cannot be willed. And I think that for me, that is just a place that that Benjamin allows us to step back from and accept some of the, the truth of that, but actually also still wait for that, for that possibility of transformation. And so I suppose I, I end with a, with a kind of a notion that, that Baudrillard's sort of, um, he's a kind of hopeless hopelessness rather than Benjamin's hopeless hopefulness. Um, that that's, there's a sliver of difference, but it's important that it's there. Um, I, I wonder, I mean, the, the book uh, obviously has come out very, very recently, but um, I, I wonder um, where are you sort of moving forward um, with, with this kind of work? Are you, are you going to be doing some more stuff around um, questions of culture and regeneration and urban space, or um, are you thinking about another um, project within cultural studies? Um, yeah, I'm, well, I'm still interested in ideas of urban change and space and place, and I'm still interested in those kind of apparently minor moments of transformation that 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 produce an understanding of, of sort of belonging and attachment to place. Um, I've recently been working on a project with two other colleagues. Um, we, we got some money for a project entitled Media and Place, which focuses on um, West Yorkshire, and um, it's there are various projects in, in as part of the bid, um, and we're looking at 
um, public engagement with uh, sculpture at Yorkshire Sculpture Park, with urban guerrilla gardening in Leeds, um, rhubarb and Yorkshire identity, uh, media tourism to home firth, and tourism practices across the region. So um, it kind of, uh, the, this project, Media in Place, notes this sort of shift in cultural studies away from the merely representational um, and it uses all of the projects use walking interviews so I'm taking that method uh, with me from the book if you like and from that previous work to think through some of the more embodied practices of place as well as as well as the cultural representations sounds really really interesting thanks for listening to new books in critical theory I've been your host Dr Dave O'Brien on this episode I was talking to Dr Zoe Thompson from Leeds Beckett University about her new book Urban Constellations Spaces of Cultural Regeneration in Post-Industrial Britain